Last week we looked at the prayer, Come Lord Jesus. This morning we will look at the prayer, I will remember. And we'll find that prayer in Psalm 77. I'll read the text. You can read along, we'll pray, and we'll dig in. This is God's Word, Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jedithun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses in the earth. This is God's good word. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening. And as we listen, Lord, make us hear your voice, your voice. And Lord, make us see your glory, your beauty, your majesty. Overwhelm us, God. And by that vision, change us. We become what we worship. Lord, shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus, as we see Him in this Word. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I was in a diner having lunch with my family. But this was no ordinary lunch because this was no ordinary diner. You see, in this diner, the server didn't hand you a bill. In this diner, the servers would be fired if they frowned and were not smiling at all times. In this diner, the kids were treated with cookies and with ice cream at the end. At this diner, the kids were able to hug their heroes, Mickey Mouse and 
Sophia the first. And Handy Manny and Doc McStuffins. Because this diner was in the happiest place on earth. This was a Disney diner. But here's the thing. The family next to us. They were killing Disney's vibe. Let me say this. There were about 20 of them. And they were all in the same t-shirt. Anybody guilty of that? We all know that. They were all in the same t-shirt. But one of them, and they were a teenager, was red with anger and wet with tears. And some were trying to ignore her. We're at Disney. (laughs) Others were trying to persuade her. We're at Disney. (laughs) Now, I'm an INFJ. What that means is I was feeling the tension. I was feeling the awkward. I could not enjoy the meal because I was seeing what was happening. This teenager was not going to fake happy at the happiest place on earth. And I felt every single bit of that tension. And this happened in real life. But as I see it, it's a holiday parable. The holidays are designed to be like that Disney diner, aren't they? The happiest season of the year. And it seems everybody's wearing colored matched shirts. And if you're not happy, it doesn't matter. This is the holidays. (laughs) Get with it. So some ignore you, others persuade you. Conform. And you feel the pressure, don't you? You feel the pressure. So many of us fake it. That's what Christians do. We fake it. I remember when I was struggling with doubts and sorrows that I didn't even understand as a 20-year-old. And I had, what, the 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones called spiritual depression. And around this time I had a friend who said that I was melancholic. And I hated that. I hated that designation. I wanted to be joyful. So I tried my hardest to fake it. It's not at all surprising to me that The National Institute of Health says that there is a higher rate of depression during the holidays. One survey said that over or nearly half of people dread the festivities of November, December. And I wonder if that is because we have made the holidays into a Disney diner. I want to invite you to an Advent diner. That's the space we're in this morning. Where it's okay to be red with anger and wet with tears. Where you will not be ignored or persuaded. Hope and all churches that believe the gospel are Advent diners. It's not the magic kingdom, but it is God's kingdom. Because Advent is for a people who understand they are in a wilderness. But 
they are awaiting people, that we are exiles. Advent is for a people who resonate with the first four verses of the psalm we just heard. Which to me describes spiritual depression. When God seems cold, verse 1. When God seems careless, verse 2. Take a look. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and my soul refuses to be comforted. Where is your comfort? When God seems comfortless or careless. Or when God seems downright cruel. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. What can you do when this happens? Well, God wants you to pray, I will remember. But it's not just any kind of remembering. There is actually three versions of remembering in this psalm. Two of them fall short and one of them alone leads to a revival of sorts. A revival in the heart of the psalmist. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the two faulty forms of remembering that we would be tempted to do when we feel spiritually depressed. And then finally look at the third form of remembering, what I'll call redemptive remembering. And we will see how that and that alone can revive the heart. So first, what are the faulty forms of remembering? The first is what I'll call nostalgic remembering. Actually, take that back. We'll call it manipulative remembering. I got ahead of myself. Because the first kind of remembering that we see in this is manipulative at root. In verses 1 through 4, the psalmist remembers God. You see it in verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. But as he remembers God, it's, it's for God to change his circumstances. It's a cry to God to change his circumstances, to manipulate God to form, uh, to to, to work in his life in a way that he wants God to work in his life. On Friday, just as an example, my family drove to Indiana for a short visit with my family for Christmas gathering. It was a very short visit. It was a three hour drive there, three hour drive back. And we had to leave in the middle of the day. But we knew we were doing a gift exchange. And so heavy on my heart and heavy on my wife's heart was we want to come, come to Indiana, but we do not want it to feel like we're just going there to get the gifts. If we're going to be there for just a couple hours and there's a gift exchange, it would be tempting to just say, hey, we're driving to Indiana to get the gifts. But that would not communicate love. That would not communicate any kind of respect, any kind of desire to actually be with my folks. But isn't that how we treat God in prayer? Okay, God, I'll make the six-hour drive so long as I drive home with the gifts. That's manipulative. That's idolatry. It looks holy. It looks religious. But in fact, it is using God into your own program. I can be so prayerless, guys. I can be so prayerless. And then when I want God to change my life circumstance, I start crying out. And that will never lead to a revived heart. 
So the psalmist turns to a different kind of remembering in verses 5 through 9. I'll call this spiritual nostalgia. First was spiritual manipulation. This is spiritual nostalgia because in our depression, we can hearken back to a time when things don't feel so bad in our life. The good old days. Verse 5, I consider the days of old. This, psalm, this psalmist is saying, now, okay, I'm going to stop just calling you in to change my circumstances. Now I'm going to just meditate on how my life was when it was easier, when it was better, when God seemed nearer. But this doesn't work either. It only leads to despair. I mean, just look how all of God's best loving covenantal attributes are reversed. In verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever? Never again be favorable. So the favor of the Lord is reversed. Has his steadfast love, his covenant has said, I will never leave you love. Has it ceased? Are his promises the bedrock of what it means to be a person of hope? To lean on his promises. This person is saying after nostalgically remembering how his life used to be. Is saying, hey, his promises are over. It's clear. They're not for me. Has he forgotten to be gracious? His grace, his compassion, has he shut it up? Has he slammed the door on his loving kindness? See, nostalgia is not the way to revival either. But it's so tempting. Because nostalgia is, at root, self-oriented and self-selecting. Nostalgia is... As one person put it, Joshua Milborn, looking at life through a rose-colored rearview mirror. So when you're spiritually depressed, it might be tempting to live in your past. When I became a Christian, when my kids were not complicated, when my marriage was easier, when I went to that retreat and experienced God, And so we live in the past and we become more resentful of God today. That's what it does. And so the psalmist helps me see how remembering can be so selfish. Remembering God even. It can be so selfish. Manipulation and nostalgia are both distortions. And they both distort the heart. But spiritual revival is available to you. It's in this psalm. It happens The hinge is in verse 10. The psalmist says, Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. What will I do? In verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. God is encouraging us to remember something way more reliable than just our personal biography. God is encouraging us to remember something way more reliable than just the ways in which we hope God will act in the future. It's how God has acted in the past. Take a look at verse 12. Where he says, I will ponder all of your work. You see, he's shifting his focus from his work to God's work. And that makes all the difference. 
He's shifting his gaze from himself and his story to God and to God's redemptive story. And that makes all of the difference. That is the hinge. And notice how this kind of remembering is different than the first two. This one is anchored in God's exodus. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord in verse 11. I will remember the wonders of old. And his mind immediately locks down on the exodus. He says in verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, think Exodus, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen and you led your people like a flock. The psalmist, in other words, starts meditating on the rock solid, never changing good news of God's redemption. And he takes his heart's eyes away from his own biography. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright calls the Exodus the primary model of God's idea of redemption. The primary model of God's idea of redemption. Not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New, where it is used as one of the keys to understanding the meaning of Christ's cross. It was, for the Old Testament people of God, the gospel, the good news, that God acted on their behalf by grace and by grace alone and rescued them. So what revives this psalmist? Remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel. Now why does this revive him? I can think of a few reasons. The first is this. Remembering the gospel. Remembering how God redeems us. Makes you less self-absorbed. In verses 1 through 6. Of Psalm 77. You will see the pronoun I. 18 times. And you will see the word God mentioned six times. In verses one through six, God is an accessory to our story. Yet, in verses 12 through 20, we will see the word God mentioned 21 times. And how many times is the word I mentioned? Zero. We are no longer self-absorbed, but caught up in God's redemptive acts. That's what happens. That's the change. And that's where the revival occurs. Beauty makes us self-forgetful. Think of a time where you saw something absolutely breathtaking. Last thing I can remember was when our men went on a trip to the New River Gorge and we stood at the precipice of Diamond Point. And you know what? I forgot everybody. No offense, guys. I forgot you were there. You become self-forgetful in the presence of beauty. 
If that's true of God's creation, how much more true is it of God himself? How much more true is it of God's grace, of God's redemption, of God coming and parting the seas and judging all who don't repent, but saving those who do, which is us. Know that we deserve God's judgment, and yet he saves us. How much more will that cause us to be self-forgetful? Remembering the gospel makes you self-forgetful. Remembering the gospel also makes us less insecure. That's why revival happens. We're insecure when we base our lives on ourselves or on other people. Haven't you noticed that? When you base your lives, when the foundation rock of who you are is what you do and how you present yourself. Some of us feel this, even though we intellectually can, uh, can say, my rock is Jesus and nothing else. But every time we post on Facebook, man, our rock is something else, ain't it? It's how many likes we get. It's how people respond to your insight about the news cycle. Or when you post on Instagram. Or when you present at work. Or when you meet up with moms. The hat ends up being our secure rock. We know how insecure that is. When we base our lives on us, and when we base our lives on others, we have insecurity. But when we base our lives, as this psalmist does, on God and what He has done, His gospel, we find security. How much better is it to remember the gospel in our depression than manipulation and nostalgia? How much better? Are you like... The psalmist here? Are you like Asaph? I am. I am. Most of the time I pray is to manipulate God. But manipulative prayer leads to dark places, friends. Let's stop using God. Instead, let's start adoring God. Let's start worshiping God. Let's start looking at what God has done. Let's use this psalm during Advent as a summons towards something better. Redemptive remembering. Redemptive remembering. How can this work out in your life? I think three things. First, let's read our Bibles. And let's not read our Bibles out of guilt. Let's read our Bibles like in the same way that I was standing on the edge of Diamond Point. Let's read our Bible so that we can see God's saving actions. So that we can see beauty. What turns Asaph around? He was reading and meditating on Exodus 15. That's what he's doing. What gave revival in the heart of Asaph was when he stopped thinking about his own biography and started reading his Bible. And thinking on God's biography and God's story. Psalm 1, I love it. He's, and Psalm 1, it says to meditate on God's word. And the word there for meditate is often used for how livestock chew on cud. So the, so the Psalms are encouraging us to meditate, to chew. Like a jolly rancher. To work it around. In our mouth. 
all day. So let me encourage you to do that. Not read the Bible out of duty, but read the Bible in order to see beauty. And to chew on it. Much like this psalmist does. He chews on Exodus 15. He meditates on it. And it turns him around. But we must do more than this psalmist does, which, you know, meditates on the old Exodus. And we must meditate on the new Exodus. Because after all, Jesus, in his crucifixion, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, it, his crucifixion is described as an Exodus. In the old Exodus, God's people were protected by what? By the blood of a spotless lamb, which was painted on the door frame of their house. So that the angel of death would pass over their house. But in the new exodus we are covered by the blood of a spotless lamb. So that God in his just wrath passes over those of us who deserve that wrath because of our sins. In the old exodus what happens? God split the sea rescuing God's people. All who were repentant. All who were trusting in him. In the new exodus God crashes the water of judgment on his own son. So that we would never experience that judgment. In the old exodus, what happens? God's people were led by Moses and Aaron. As it says here in verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What did Aaron do but lead the people into idolatry? Jesus, the true shepherd of God, leads his people perfectly. Never forgets. Never forgets you. He came for you. And you know what happened? He died an idolater's death on a cross because of all of our idolatry. That is the new exodus. And we must meditate on the new exodus if we are going to have revival in our hearts. We need to repent of our sin and trust in God and see His beauty. And it will not be beautiful. As one pastor puts it, the glory and the beauty and the joy of Christmas will not be joy, beauty, Until we first see the bad news of Christmas. That Jesus came because of our sin. Our idolatry. But our shepherd, he comes and he uses his power and his authority to serve and to save. We meditate on that. We open our Bibles to see it. And to remind ourselves of it time and time and time and time and time and time again. May we never say, I understand and I've I've got it. The gospel, I've got it. Must we always go to the Word to behold the beauty of His grace? So read the Bible. Read the Bible as a as a beauty seeker, not as a dutiful servant. Read the Bible as a beauty seeker, not as a dutiful servant, and you will experience revival. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is to not just read the Bible, but rehearse the gospel. You know, Asaph, he doesn't just meditate, actually, on Exodus. He prayerfully relives it. Doesn't he? He prayerfully relives it. That's what we're doing in Advent. We are prayerfully reliving what it might have felt like to be an Old Testament Israelite, awaiting the coming of Jesus. Even as we wait for his return. And in the same way, we need to relive the new exodus. Every single moment of our lives. 
This is what Paul does in Galatians 3 when he writes, Oh, foolish Galatians. Listen to what he writes. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. In some translations, it says set forth. The word there is to portray as if on a placard or a billboard. So even Paul, heady Paul, heady theologian Paul, he understood that for revival to happen, we must not just remember the gospel, but relive it. To see it again in all of its vividness. What Jesus did for us. And then finally, friends, let's rehearse the gospel, but also rest in the gospel. You know, we can't demand that God change our circumstances, but we can rest in the finished work of Christ always. And that's what makes the gospel different from every other religion. That's what makes the gospel different from every other man-centered effort to be saved. Which may look religious or may look irreligious. Which may look religious or may just look like Philosophy or self-help. It's all the same. Religion, self-help. It all promises peace by what you do. The gospel, which means good news, is a proclamation of news that is good. And it's news Of what God has done. Not what we have done. What God has done. And so we simply raise our empty hands of faith and take hold of it. And that leads to revival. You see the difference? The philosopher Charles Taylor. He says that modern life. We all live in late modernity. He says that modern life is as if life is lived like a buffered self. We are all buffered. We are all sort of like have concrete domes over us. That's how most of us live, even as Christians. Is that not true? We live as if we have a concrete dome over our head. Our prayers, they reach about six inches above us. God in His work sort of hits a dome. Many who don't believe in the supernatural, who are simply perhaps, you know, all I see, all I can taste, all I can experience is all that there is, the same. He calls it a buffered self. But the Bible presents a different view of humanity. What he calls, what Charles Taylor calls, the porous self. Isn't that a great contrast? The buffered self and the porous self. In the scriptures, we see that God can pour his finished work into your life. And that moreover, we can actually give him our lives. And he can give us his life. There can be a substitution. Where we give God all of our sin and we pray all of our sin to him. And God, through His Son, Jesus, pours the righteousness of Christ into our life. And give us rest. And give us revival. You can be changed. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And so redemptive remembering is how the Lord pours His finished work into your life. We remember the gospel. 
So let's repent right now of self-revival. Can we? Let's repent right now of self-revival. And instead, (laughs) we may think we're remembering God, but we're actually manipulating Him. We're functionally forgetting Him when we pray in those ways. But instead, let's remember God's salvation. Jesus, who never forgot and who will never forget. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this text. It's such a joy to encounter your gospel through the Exodus. To see that you were foreshadowing and demonstrating to your people across time. That you are a God who acts in history on behalf of your people because you love us. Not because there's anything good in us, but because you love us by grace. Lord, as we pray in the name of Jesus, whose cross was the greater exodus, whose cross defeated all of our enemies, whose cross paid for all of our sin, whose cross removes all of our shame, whose cross empowers us to live a life of sacrifice, whose cross assures us that we will never stand condemned in your presence, who assures us that we will always be your friend, always be your son, always be your daughter. Would we remember the work of the cross Again and again and again and again. And would you pour it into our poorest selves? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.